<laughs> Let me hear. Say it one more time. You're listening to Failure. Failure. Failure 101. Failure. Failure. Wait. Fail your. Fail your. Failure. 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 I can't say that word. Right. You're listening to Paul Elmore. Perfect. Before we get started, would it be okay if I open us up in prayer and then we'll jump into where we're going tonight? Father in heaven, it is again um, humbling to come before a holy and precious and um, almighty God. You have made us and we are deeply and intimately known by you. Thank you that the fears and the insecurities that we carry, Lord, are not a surprise to you, but you know us deeply and intimately and personally. It's my prayer, Lord, that tonight we will hear your voice clearly, that you will speak to those places in our hearts that have been uh, potentially damaged and hurt and wounded, that there will become healing and peace. Thank you that you love us and that we can serve you with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. And in your precious and holy name, amen. Here's where we're going. There we go, almost. I'm just going to keep hitting the button and we'll see what happens. There we go. Tonight, we're going to be talking about my mistakes prove that I am a bad person. I call this shame versus guilt. It's my goal for everyone in the room tonight to feel more guilty as you leave. Isn't that going to be a fun night? I would rather have you feeling guilt rather than shame. So here's the questions that we wrestled with. Here, for those who are curious what shame looks like, that's what it looks like right there. Um, here's where we're going to be going tonight, if we can. First, we're going to talk about just defining some common definitions. What is shame? What is guilt? What does that look like? How are we playing with those words and throwing those terms around? Secondly, we're going to talk about where does it come from? How does this sense of shame, um, how does the sense of guilt get developed in us? Because I think that's real important to understand some origins of where that comes from. Thirdly, it would be really good use of our time to figure out what do we do to overcome it? How do we overcome shame? And then lastly, how does shame and guilt tie in with failure? And how do we overcome the fear of failure? How many would be really, really interested in learning how to overcome the fear of failure? Would that be valuable information? I want to give a little caveat right here if I can. For many of you, um, in fact, most people don't know that I um, am a locksmith. I'm actually a journeyman locksmith. I was a locksmith for 10 years, way back. And I became a locksmith because my father had a set of lock picks that were given to him uh, by a friend of his that was a locksmith. And being a teenage, young teenage boy, I started rummaging through his junk drawer in his room and found this set of lock picks. For every teenage boy, finding a set of lock picks is like finding a treasure. 
all of these images of James Bond and covert ops and, you know, things like that start to just go through my mind. And so I said, Dad, would you please teach me how to pick a lock? <laughs> Not sure the wisdom of my father to answer that question, but he says, sure, no problem. And it took him about five minutes for him to show me how to pick a lock. I, you know, where to, how to use the tools, how to get it lined up, what, the, what you're trying to accomplish, how a lock works real basically. Um, and he showed me how to pick a lock in five minutes. And then I remember that same day we were taking a road trip and we were in the car for two hours. And so I'm sitting in the back of our 1980 Chevy Malibu with this padlock in my hand and trying to pick this lock, you know, pick, 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 pick for an hour and a half. Finally, after an hour and a half, it goes click and opens up. And I can still remember that, oh my gosh, that's it. James Bond, move over. I am um, up to the big leagues here because I just picked this lock. My dad, driving, hears it and goes, hey, what was that? I, dad, here, here, look, look, look. He holds it up, look at that, that's amazing. Click, oh, <laughs> dad, hour and a half. Hands it back and says, do it again. So it took me only about an hour and 15 minutes the second time and then slowly worked my way down. From there, I went to the neighborhood locksmith, said, hey, I want my own set of lock picks. They said, no, we can't sell you those, they're illegal to have, but we will, we will show you, we'll train you. If you wanna ride your bike and after school, sweep up and we'll show you how to start, you know, using locks. Ten years later, I left. I was a very good lock pick. I can open up pretty much anything when it comes to lock picks, um, picking locks, um, and a whole variety of other things. Tonight, give yourself some grace. We will show you the steps on how to overcome the fear of failure, but that will take some time to learn how to do it, and you have to continue to try it and use it and create muscle memory. If you can do that, then you become very, very successful at not living this life of fear anymore. And life can look very different for you. So that's where we're going tonight. Shame. This is what shame looks like. This is where we're going again. We talked about those things. <sighs> so the first question we're going to ask is, number one, what exactly is shame and what exactly is guilt? Quick review here. Remember last week we said this is where we're going uh, in regards to how we're shaping the failure, the failure information. Those lacking self-esteem typically overgeneralize their failures and they conclude that they are just plain less intelligent and less competent than other people. Their failures kind of reinforce that. It's my belief that, oops, gosh, I'm getting a little happier. The conclusions we draw about ourselves are often rooted in shame. That's why I think it's so very important to talk about the topic of shame tonight. If you have a self-perception that's based in shame, we tend to have skewed perspective. It's like looking in with glasses that are kind of warped and, and not quite accurate, so we can't see things as clearly as we should be. Um, and so here's what shame kind of looks like. While guilt is a painful feeling of regret and responsibility for one's actions, shame is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. This is the importance, again, of why I want everyone to feel, I'll get out of your way, feel more guilty. Guilt says, I have made a mistake and I feel bad. I feel remorse. I have 
uncomfortable feelings because of the mistake that I've made. But I am still inherently an okay person. I still have value. I still have um, worth. Someone who is wrestling with shame says, I've made a mistake and that confirms that I am a bad person, that I am inherently flawed, that I am broken in some way and that I can't be fixed. It is a, it is a character association with who they are instead of the idea that their behaviors are bad. Is that making sense for lots of folks here? Is that being kind of clear? Now, being able to say that, being able to articulate that is, is easy. Being able to separate that out in real life can get a little muddled, can get a little confusing at times. Um, if your uh, shame says, I fail because I am a failure. Guilt says, um, or there really is no other option. Okay, this is just who I am. I can't really be good for those who are carrying around shame. Romans 8 talks about two words, and I want to see if we can um, clarify some of these on kind of how I understand them. The words that Romans 8 uses is um, conviction and condemnation. Okay. I want you to imagine for a minute that I have done a crime. I have done something bad what would be the natural consequences of me um, doing something against the law? What would that be? Incarceration. Um, what was it over here? Being arrested, doing those things. Standing before the judge. The thing that makes Christianity unique, the thing that makes Christianity special is this. We stand before the judge and we say, yes, I am guilty. I have done this wrong. I am, I am guilty of what I have been charged. And therefore, I need to be convicted. Okay? We can have a judicial term of if someone is convicted, that means what? They're found guilty. They now have kind of this assignment that says this person is responsible for the bad thing. Um, and the court determines that. They are guilty. They have been convicted. Our consciences convict us as well. I feel convicted because I haven't done this or I haven't done that. Those kinds of things. Being convicted is not a bad thing. What sets Christianity apart is we are no longer condemned. If I've done something that is horrific, that requires death, I am guilty. I am convicted of that crime. But we have someone who steps into that place and says, I will bear the punishment of that crime. You are convicted, but you are not condemned. That is guilt in its, in its finest form. It says, we're not going to gloss over it. We're not going to say that you didn't do it or it's okay or all of that. Guilt is supposed to feel bad, but it isn't something that shapes our, our existence. When you are condemned, that shapes your existence. You die. You don't exist. Okay, you have to pay the ultimate price. I want us to be able to own our mistakes. I want us to say, yes, I messed up on that and I should be convicted. But 
I don't have to be condemned if I truly believe the message of the gospel. I know that someone else is going to pay that price. He has been condemned and I am set free. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just blow your mind? Shame versus guilt. So I want each of you to feel more guilty. I want you to own your mistakes, but I don't want it to determine your future. I don't want it to determine your value or your worth because, well, we'll get to that later. It's not good. We'll just leave it at that. If you're wondering, do I suffer from shame? Do I suffer from guilt? What is it? How does it play out? Here is, um, oh, talked about Romans 8 already. Here are some symptoms of shame. If you spend a good t amount of your time trying to convince others of how bad you are, you know, you make a mistake. You know what? You're okay. You're going to be all right. No, this is just, uh, I, I can't believe I did that. Really, you're going to be okay. No, you don't understand. You see, it's, it's really worse than you know. I f it's just, it's really bad. It's really bad. That, that's shame kind of verbiage, shame kind of language. Um, hard to get away from that. If you can't forgive yourself for long time wrongs, I can't wait for the forgiveness week. I think that the forgiveness week is very potent. It's very, very powerful. Forgiveness is the, I'll give you a little teaser here. Forgiveness is the lack of accusation against yourself anymore. It's the, I did something wrong, but I'm no longer going to accuse myself or remind myself. I, I give up that right to remind myself of how bad I am or the wrongs I have done. People who wrestle with shame tend not to be able to do that. They use all of their past mistakes as fodder to keep this fire burning of self-loathing, self-anger, self-deprecation, all those kinds of things. And we want to, it's healthy to be able to release some of that because we are to forgive as what? As we have been forgiven. Now, if we can just convince ourselves that we have been forgiven, that tends to work really good. And that's, that's a skill set too. You can learn how to do that. And we'll talk about that at week <coughs> six or something like that. Finally, if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. I've got this little hidden piece and I'm keeping it kind of squashed down, and if it ever kind of gets seen, gets open, gets revealed, that's a done deal. Everyone in my life's going to be walking away, and I will be alone, ridiculed, isolated, those kinds of things. If any of those things sound familiar, if any of those things are um, uh, old friends of yours, then listen up, and as we go through the rest of the night, we're going to figure out what to do with some of that. Has anyone ever heard of toxic shame? Toxic shame is a particular type of shame that is what we're going to probably uh, coin or identify as um, uber shame. It is, it is um, <laughs> just made that up. That's a technical term. You learn that in school. Um, uber shame. It is when this part of you is, is tainted or, or um, corrupted, shall we say, and I don't like that term because it 
doesn't sound right, but it's just broken in such ways that it shapes your entire perspective of yourself and the world around you. Toxic shame commonly comes out of abusive situations. Uh, let me read you a quote here. Abuse creates toxic shame, the feeling of being flawed and diminished and never measuring up. Toxic shame feels much worse than guilt. With guilt, you've done something wrong, but you can repair it. You can do something about it. With toxic shame, there is something wrong with you, and there's nothing you can do about it. You are inadequate and de defective. Toxic shame is the core of the wounded child. The phrase here is, it's a loss of I am-ness, loss of personal identity or identification. Uh, another term that is commonly used is the spiritual bankruptcy. When a child is put into a situation that is so overwhelming and it, and it, and it contradicts the world as they should know it, the way God created it. A child is needing safety and security and guidance and direction and care and love and unconditional acceptance and all of those things. And when a child is compromised by being put into a position where they are being either used or hurt in very personal and intimate ways, ways that normally we're not even equipped to deal with until we are in our adulthood, those, situation, those situations sear a piece of our soul and it creates this loss of identity you don't actually know who you are. You don't know where you fit in this world. You don't know what is up and what is down, who is safe and who is dangerous, who is um, who you are. And when you don't know who you are, you don't know how to relate to other people. And it creates this world of, of isolation and, and lostness. And it is um, painful. It is painful. Some of the hardest work I do as a trauma therapist is helping individuals who have been wounded as children to learn that the wounds that they received as a child might not have been their fault, that adults make mistakes, that they didn't have any responsibility or pieces in this. And even introducing that idea is like speaking an entirely different language to them. Even conceiving of that is, is mind-blowing. It's, it's boggling. They just they can't quickly and readily adopt it. But what I want you to hear, and I want you to hear it very, very clearly, is that you can be found again. That part can be redeemed your soul can be found. We have a God who is compassionate. We have a God who knows our pain intimately and better than we know ourselves. And the road is hard and the journey is not easy. But when you do the work and you learn how to be vulnerable and be cared for in the ways that you should be, you are redeemed. This little life that was thrown away as a child, as an adult now, is redeemed and seen as valuable and precious.
statistics tell me that a group of this size, there are some people in the room right now who are familiar with this story. If you are, I want you to hear clearly that your story can be different. The end can be different than the beginning. Okay. Toxic shame. I have a client right now um, whose story is almost unbearable and it's taken us quite a long time to create just a sensation uh, or uh, 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 an environment of trust to even start putting our toes in the water. But as she does this, she changes and it is, um, it's a sacred privilege to be present as you watch someone's life be redeemed. It's humbling. Um, we can do that for each other, by the way. It doesn't require a counseling degree to do that. We can do that with each other. We can walk alongside each other in our stories. Everyone with me? Keep breathing. <sighs> Section two. Where does shame come from? This would be important to know. I want you to hear some of this. Um, and this is where some of these handouts are going to come uh, real quickly. Um, first of all, before you start getting distracted by the handouts, this concept, when I first heard it, it's one of those few in my practice that I just keep coming back to over and over and over and over again because it's so simple and yet if, you didn't, if I didn't understand it, when I didn't understand it, um, I felt a little lost and as soon as I kind of grabbed hold of this, it's like, of course, this makes sense. How could I be so blind? How could I not see this? Insecurity confirmation. Failures, and here's why failure is so hard and this is why we're talking about shame and guilt in a failure class. Failures, our mistakes, often confirm a pre-existing negative belief about myself. Let's see. Deborah, mm -hmm. may I pick on you? Absolutely. We've known each other for a while now, and so I figured it'd be safe to pick on you. Okay. Brace yourself. With all of the vengeance and venom that I can muster, I'm going to try to insult Deborah right now. Okay? So if this is uncomfortable for you, take a deep breath. Plug your Don't ears, okay? No. <laughs> you got a little posse going after you. They're going to you know, jump on me. All right. All right, you ready? Ready, Deborah? Um, Deborah, when I first saw you, um, all I could think of is you are a giant purple bumblebee. Well, thank you. How's, how's your heart? Are you okay? I'm Am okay. I, are you going to survive that? Bee, so that's really? Nice. Didn't know that. Now, <laughs> How effective of an insult do you think of that's going to be as I try to call her a giant purple bumblebee? In fact, some of you might be laughing. See already? I'm trying to hurt her feelings and you're laughing. That's a very insensitive, you know, not very nice of you. The reason that an insult like that bounces off, it's just like absurd to the point of laughing, is because Deborah doesn't go around going, am I a giant purple bumblebee? Oh man, I hope... Do people think I'm a purple bumblebee? Does anyone... Oh man, you know what? I think it might be true. And now, either a failure or a comment, if she carried that around, that comment would sting. That would hurt, sorry, little pun there. <laughs> Didn't even mean that. 
that would hurt her because it's already a pre-existing negative belief about her. Now, if I know Deborah better, I might be able to insult her in a little bit more personal and wounded way if I know some of her pre-existing negative beliefs, her insecurities about herself. And if I say this thing to her, whatever that might be, that would go right through all of those barriers, right through all that armor, and go right to the heart and stick in there. For, and failures often confirm, you know, a mistake says, see, this just proves that I am, insert pre-existing negative belief here. So the trick is, we have to understand and figure out what pre-existing negative beliefs that we have, because those are the cracks in our armor. Those are the weaknesses that we have. And if we can start to deal with those beliefs systems, again, shame, what we learn about ourselves, we tend to be more resilient to failure, to insult, to comments like that, because we've dealt with that pre-existing belief. You have a question? Yep. Pre-existing negative belief, even though it's not even delivered with any intention to wound. Yeah. Because of that astigmatism, it'll hurt. That's, that's most marriages, by the way, where a, a, a comment is just put out there, and it is said with no venom or animosity, but it bounces off, you know, my wife's story, or she's something, and it, it says something, and it hits this weakness, this insecurity in me, and then I respond out of that. It's like, how dare you say that to me? I didn't mean anything. What do you mean? You certainly usually, and it escalates and escalates because, you know, again, in marriages and close relationships, we tend to know each other the best. That's how we're supposed to be designed, and we know those weaknesses. We know those little, those cracks already, and if we haven't learned how to be kind and holding each other's hearts well, we tend to go for those spots. And that can become really messy in relationships and all those kinds of things. This concept came out of a quote by um, this lady right here. Who's that? Eleanor Roosevelt. Yep. She says it this way. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. You have to believe that already, and then you feel inferior. If you think that you are lazy, then the things that you do, the mistakes that you make, the comments people say, that, that can sting, that can get in there a little bit closer to the heart. The work as a counselor, the work that we can do with each other's lives is to help each other understand those beliefs that we carry and start to challenge those and say, what if you're not lazy? What if you're not stupid? What if you're not, you know, over and over and over again? I don't see you that way. What if it's true? What would that be like? And so we can start to change those kinds of feelings and approaches. Different kinds of cracks require different kinds of repairs, by the way. And we're going to look at, again, how some of these shame beliefs uh, become rooted in our lives. Um, working with, again, uh, a belief around uh, laziness is different than working around a belief of being stupid and, you know, vice versa and all those kinds of things. <sighs> really important concept I want you to understand here before we talk about 
where a majority of these negative beliefs come from. Children are designed to be egocentric. The developmental stages of our lives equip us or teach us to be egocentric, which what that means is as children, we believe that the world revolves around us. Um, it's the client who, as a little girl, six, seven years old, she hated peas. She hated eating the little green peas at her dinner. And so one night she fussed and fussed that she didn't want to eat her peas. Mom and dad kind of yelling at her, eat your peas, eat your peas. I don't want to eat them. I don't like them. They're yucky. They're yucky. And then two days later, mom and dad sit little girl down on the couch and say, we've got some bad news to tell you. Mommy and daddy are getting a divorce. She believes that if I only eat my peas, mommy and daddy wouldn't be getting a divorce. Now, as adults, we can view the world very, very differently. But as a child, we believe that the world revolves around us and the things that we do. I can remember being in a, in a, um, in a small truck with my dad and driving along and he hits a red light. I mean, just normal, just there's a red light there and he gets frustrated because he was late or something and he <sighs> kind of this big frustrated sigh and I can remember feeling like it's my fault that my dad had to stop at a red light. Does that make sense? Logically, it doesn't make sense, but as a child, we only have the capacity to understand the world that we are somehow so powerful, so omnipotent that the world revolves around us and our decisions. Now, here's where this can get confusing. Imagine a child who has bad things that are happening to him, the little girl whose parents are getting divorced and she thinks it's her fault. She now says, guess what? I am never ever going to say no to peas and I hate them. I can't stand them, but I'm gonna eat my peas every day as an adult as, because that will make everything better. And she thinks that she can fix these things. You take a child who is, again, mistreated into in some sort of abusive situation and they're saying, I don't understand what I'm doing, how I'm attracting all this, this um, attention that I don't like, that I don't want, that is so uncomfortable. Um, I must be doing something wrong. There's something inherently flawed with me. And if I can only be good enough, be quiet enough, be invisible enough, be whatever it is, then I will somehow make this all better. Children do not have the capacity to understand, small children, up to eight, nine years old or so, they typically don't have the capacity to understand that adults are flawed, that we have mistakes, that we have bad days, that we mistreat each other and our children sometimes because we are sinful and broken. And so they believe these things about themselves. And it creates this kind of unfortunate consequence of skewing their world's perspective. Um, which means as we go into these next things and um, where do the negative beliefs come from? These, these core beliefs, these cracks in our armor. As children experience some of these, um, they internalize it and they believe it's their fault that this is them. For those who, um, hey, look at that. I'm gonna have to borrow one because I didn't make myself a copy. Um, for those who are interested, I've given you three common 
um, sources, and again, these are not by far the only sources of, of uh, sources of shame, but these are very common places to find root in some of them. The first page is symptoms of shame checklist. Some of those things as well, if you want to kind of do a little self-evaluation. Children of divorce, and we're not going to go through all of these, but if you happen to be um, a child or an adult who, uh, whose parents divorced um, sometime in the past, many of them have difficulty trusting others. They have a fear of commitment. They have difficulty with intimacy. Uh, they sense themselves as isolated and lonely. Um, they're highly empathic, fiercely independent. By the way, highly empathic. Any guesses why they tend to be that way? When a child's walking into a family and there's tension and there's anger and there's frustration and there's discord, they have to evaluate the situation real fast to know how do I have to respond? Do I need to, do I need to be quiet? Do I need to take cover? Do I need to be gone? And so they become very good readers at reading a room very fast, which now becomes, leads to this thing called hypervigilance. They can walk into this room right here and they could probably say, this person's having a bad day, this person's not having a good day, this person I'm just gonna probably stay over here from, and this person, and they can, they can read a room like that. They're very empathic. Um, independent, because you know, if you're by yourself, then you tend not to get hurt. Flawed beliefs again. Um, that's some of the common um, consequences of divorce and how that life perspective is kind of shaped from. Um, Children of alcoholics, for those who come from that kind of story, uh, tend to isolate ourselves and feel uneasy around other people, especially authority figures. And a little bit of explanation there. Uh, down the page a little further, we habitually choose our relationships with the emotionally unavailable people, with addictive personalities. We tend to be drawn to what we know rather than something that we don't know. Uh, we deny, minimize, or repress our feelings from our traumatic childhoods. You know what? We didn't have that bad, you know, I'm still breathing and living. and It was all okay. We give in to others instead of taking care of ourselves. Denial, isolation, control, and misplaced guilt are symptoms of family problems. And again, lots of details there. For those who are, um, I'll give you a few pictures here. That's the alcoholic picture, divorce. Um, for those who are wrestling with um, sexual abuse issues, whether you're male or female, there's two um, lists here, one for each. And these are, both of these actually were compiled by putting together a room full of uh, survivors, okay, a room full of men. And they said, tell us what your life is like. And they started just listing off, here's, here's what life's like. And they go through some of this list, you know, they have anger, guilt, avoidism, uh, physical pain, they want to die, need to be completely competent at all times, they feel like it's my fault, um, escaping into addictions. Those are just, it's just a raw list of here's common things that this group of men all felt um, who come from a very similar background. Women, um, there are your list as well, uh, self-destructiveness, um, Number seven there, that can be either cutting or um, abusive kind of things. Um, splitting or de depersonalization um, for those who as children become very, very scared. Um, God's given us a very, very nice uh, coping mechanism uh, called dissociation 
to help us survive. But when we get used to doing that as children, we tend to do it as adults, which means we miss out on lots of experiences in our lives because we just aren't there. Our mind is somewhere else. And so learning how to reintegrate and become present in experiences. Um, again, 19, guilt, shame, low self-esteem, patterns of being a victim, and all sorts of stuff. Those resources, those questions are for you. If any of those fit um, or are familiar, then these events, these experiences tend to shape how you view the world. Again, as children, we own that personally because of that egocentricness uh, God has given us. Questions at all through any of this? Feel free to ask as we go. Wonderful. Experience is the best teacher, which is both a blessing and a curse because saying something to someone who is experiencing pain or hurt, um, it's an uphill battle to begin with. But I want you to, I want you to know that challenging the beliefs that they are hearing, that they are starting to own themselves because of the experiences starts to put the seeds of doubt in their mind that what they are starting to believe about themselves, the unhealthy beliefs, might not be true. It's the adult who says, I can remember the teacher who she just loved on me and she thought I was the greatest kid. She was my favorite teacher because she saw me differently than everybody else saw me. And that, that teacher becomes sacred, becomes safe and special to, to them. Um, other adults, um, you know, aunts and uncles and other family members, um, all of those kinds of things. For the hard conversation, the kindest thing to do in that situation is to let the pain, that the offending adult deal with the consequences of their hurtful choices. That might mean reporting, that might mean um, um, some sort of a action to have the child safe and protected. Um, and that's a, that's a sticky, sticky mess. I know it's very difficult and that's a much broader conversation, but if you have to weigh out the two options, keeping a child safe is very, very high on my priority list rather than keeping an adult's um, uh, image or, or reputation safe. So, and again, that's a much broader conversation. The painful reality is most of this goes unreported, it goes unknown, and, and yeah. All right, everyone's still breathing? I know this is kind of a more heavy topic tonight. Everyone take a deep breath for me, okay? In through the nose, out through the mouth. There's good news, I promise. We're getting through it.
Um, once again, I wanted to remind you of this, how this works again. A positive self-concept, a, a way you view yourself that is not tainted by shame, that is not skewed because of these painful beliefs and the pre-existing negative self-concepts that we have. Um, we're just grooving, okay? To gain a positive self-concept, hello? We need to be able to feel capable. I have a friend who grew up in Alaska and um, knows how to drive in the snow really, really well. In fact, when it snows around here, he gets out his little two-wheel drive Honda <laughs> and, you know, it's like donut time because he's just whipping through the streets and all those things and he just loves it because he has, because he has experienced a lot of success by driving in the snow. Actually, he's experienced a lot of failure because I helped him dig out um, one of the times he got stuck in the snow. I grew up in San Diego. <coughs> We don't have any snow in San Diego, so it starts, I'm one of those bad Oregon drivers where it has this little dusting of snow. I'm calling my clients, you know, the blizzard's coming in, we got to get home, I'll see you later because I don't want to get stuck at work. And I just freak out with the snow because I really have never experienced a whole lot of success because I had a whole lot of chance to practice it which means I don't feel capable driving in snow at all. And so my positive self-concept is very small when it comes to snow driving. Now, I don't know why, I don't know how this happened, but my parents instilled in me this belief that I am artistic. And so I naturally gravitate towards graphic arts and good visual communication and some of those things like that. And I'm very comfortable in that. And I don't really worry about that at all. I have a, a fairly high self-concept because I've done a lot of stuff that hadn't turned out so good. But I have experienced some things and I feel pretty capable and I have all this. And again, what's the bottom block in that to start off this whole process? And this is why we're doing this class? Yeah, very good. I wish my remote worked from the back. It is to risk and try things. And that's going to be, I think, next week when we're going to learn how to do that in a healthy way. So we want to be able to do this really, really well. But this is what we're talking about tonight again is that positive self-concept and the shame and how that all gets shaped and everything like that. Has anyone ever heard of um, The Artist's Way? The Artist's Way? Is that the right book title? Great quote in there. I want to read it to you. In fact, I'm not going to read it. Look at this. My graphic artistness has this prepared, see? Remember that in order to recover as an artist, um, you must be willing to be a bad artist. Give yourself permission to be a beginner. That's, oh man. By being willing to be a bad artist, you have a chance to be an artist. And perhaps over time, a very good one. This is for people who have tried to be an artist, who failed, who are trying to get back into it, and are trying to um, paint that Picasso, trying to paint that Van Gogh the very first time they put a canvas up. It doesn't work that way. We have to practice over and over. And I think that we have a hard time giving ourselves permission to be a beginner. We don't like that. In fact, I hate that. I want to be good now. And I don't want to try over and over and over again. I just don't want the time or the, the pain that comes with that. One of the other quotes that comes in that, in that book, and I didn't write it down because I just remembered it, is um, you cannot get better 
and look good at the same time. <laughs> That's the bad news of the night. We'll just, you know, take care of that right now. It's impossible to get better and look good at the same time. And many people, many people say they want to change, but they have a hard time sacrificing that image, that facade, that, that perspective. Oh yeah. But they're unwilling to give that up. We are our own worst critic, for sure. For sure. Yep. Okay. Then the next question we have is, section three, how to overcome shame. How many of you have ever heard of the polar bear conundrum? The polar bear conundrum. There was a study done back in the 80s uh, by a couple guys who, you know, <coughs> because they do studies, they like messing with people. That's the reason why people do studies. <laughs> and so they, they call in this group of people and they say, we're going to have a conversation for 10, 15 minutes. And we can talk about anything you want. Um, but the one rule that I have is, is you cannot think about or mention polar bears. Go. And so they talk for 15 minutes. And every time you think of a polar bear, or a bear, or a white bear, or anything like that, or anytime you mention it, you need to ring this bell. Ding! Okay? And so they run this with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people, and find out that when you tell someone not to think about something, what do they do? They think about That's it. all you can think about. They ran a real similar experiment with a whole group of people. They put a whole bunch of people like you in a room like this, hung a nice big picture of a polar bear here and other things as well. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to be in this room for two, three hours. Feel free to just talk about anything you want. But whatever you do, do not mention <laughs> the polar bear or the picture or anything like that. Be back in three hours. And then they do a little exit interview with everyone coming out, and everyone is just ticked off. They're mad, they're grumpy, they're grouchy, they hate everyone in the room. It's just kind of this whole, doesn't work. They do a whole other group, bring them in, don't mention anything about there, do an exit interview, and they ask the question, how many of you thought of or um, discussed the polar bear on, on, on the wall? And, you know, nobody did. Everyone's happy, getting along, best friends, exchanging Facebook invites and everything else like that. And, when you are trying not to think about something, we tend to think about it all the time. So if you're walking around and these scripts are playing over in your head, I'm lazy, I'm stupid, I'm irresponsible, I can't believe I did that, oh man, I, you know, and you're going over and over, or even, I wish I wasn't stupid, I wish I wasn't stupid, I wish I wasn't stupid. <laughs> what are you thinking about? Being stupid. And it tends to reinforce that belief rather than negating it. There is a um, real important principle that says we have to put in the positive, we have to put in the things that we want to become and let the things that are flawed, the things that are already there, just let them alone. Don't even, don't even bother with them for the moment, okay? And when you can start to keep the things that you want to become forefront in your mind, 
you tend to get more traction, you get more success, you tend to move on. Now again, this is a real broad principle. I do think it's important to deal with your past, with the pain, with the shame, with all those things, but it has to be done in a way that, that reinforces the positive stuff instead of only focusing on the negative. Everyone tracking? Does that make sense? So, again, it makes perfect sense. It makes, it, it's common human nature to say, I, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. And it gets tricky because many of us don't know what the opposite of that is. What is the opposite of, of you know, lazy? I, I've never, no one's ever even told me that. I, what would that be? Is that, you know, not lazy? Is that, you know, sort of not lazy? You know, lazy only some of the time? And they, they, they can't even conceive of what it would be. That is where it is helpful, again, to have a community of people who can say, here's what life could look like. Here's what it could be. Um, exercise for you. Homework assignment for those, again, who might want to consider something. Um, I call it, what do I call it? I call it, oh yeah, the accusation game. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to sit down and write out the list of everything that you accuse yourself of. I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I'm lazy, I'm never on time, I'm not very good looking, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, you know, all those things. I'd like you to write out that list so you have a very comprehensive list. And then what I'd like you to do is find a friend, find someone that you can trust, and I'd like you to follow them around, and I'd like you to start accusing them out loud of all of those things, okay? By the way, you're not very good looking, okay? By the way, you know, this or that or whatever it is. How many of you would be willing to do that? <laughs> really, because I'm gutsy. These are the people who don't have many friends up in now. Um, or vice versa. Ask your friend to take that list and follow you around and have them accuse you of all of the things that you simply accuse yourself. Because these are your stuff. And all we're doing now is putting it in the room out loud. I got away. What do you think that would feel like? Do you think that would change anything? Do you think the perspective. You'd feel terrible? Well, if somebody was telling me the things I already feel badly about. Yeah. I'd start laughing. I've actually done something similar to this, and it actually sounds really silly that you're it's actually silly. saying that you yeah. are bad. Somebody's saying it back. Here's something to consider, a little neuroscience here. When we keep things in our head up here in this little blob of our brain called the frontal cortex, okay, it tends to get bouncing around and, and perspective gets skewed. When we say things out loud, we actually process it with different parts of our brain. We're now listening, okay, it goes in through our ears and we process it through some different parts of our brain and we're using our mouth. We're using two of our different senses. If you write it down, Okay, you're now using one more, actually two more, using um, motor skills and visual. And it actually uses more of your brain to process it. And what is common is exactly your experience right there, which is you look at this and go, really? That is just ridiculous. Can, can you believe this? I mean, I, this is what I think? This is just nuts. They did another interesting study where they took a whole bunch of college students and they just put them in a, in a classroom and they said, we just want you to write for 10 minutes. You can write about anything you want 
the first 10 minutes of class all semester. Just there's no parameters, just write whatever you want. And those people tended to have a healthier self-perspective, a healthier experience in school, all those things, because they simply were just taking all this stuff and processing it in different motor skills and different ways of their brain, and they just found a little bit more relief. That's why counselors are always saying, journal, buy a journal, write, all these things. That's why counseling tends to work. And this is kind of a secret, I shouldn't probably tell you this, okay? <laughs> What statistics do you have for that one? This is, this, is what, this is why counseling works. Is The counselor might not be necessarily the smartest guy in the room, but he is providing a safe sounding board for you to process it differently. Now again, you've got to have a smart counselor. He has to know what he's talking about. She's got to be capable, all those things. Don't just go find anybody. But that's why there's therapy. That's why there's help and just sharing with other people and being seen and being known because you process it differently. That's why, again, the challenge is many of you, I want you to consider doing that thing that's on the board there that would be difficult and then telling people about it because you're going to process it differently. We're going to redeem some of your failures, again, for the very tricky, challenging ones in the room. Commercial, yes, okay? <laughs> For those who don't know it, there's this group called Refuge, okay? They meet here. They meet on Monday nights, and they tend to be a very safe group for you to step into this if you're new to this kind of whole idea of being seen and being vulnerable and being known. They're good people. Now, I'm told that it's not counseling, which is okay because counseling has its place, but um, it is fellow sojourners who have been on that path and might be either further down that path or real close to where you're at and it's nice to have company okay so I agree refuge might be a pretty good place for that um, the second way to deal with this shame stuff and if we can learn how to do this if we could learn how to truly do this thing right here, I believe that lives would be transformed. Have you heard the scripture that says we need to die to our old self? That concept? I want you to think of it in these terms. You walk out of here tonight, and as you're walking across the street, you get hit by a bus. And it's a nasty accident. And the ambulance comes and picks you up. And the, even up in the hospital. And you have one day kind of to live because the internal injuries are so bad. And the, the devastation is just unrepairable. And so for the last day on earth, you have someone who comes in and says, you know what? You don't have to worry anymore you don't have to struggle with that addiction anymore. You don't have to worry about that responsibility. You don't have to worry about the bills. You don't have to worry about the financial obligation. You don't have to worry about all of these painful things in life because you are no longer going to be in life. You are free. You are totally and completely free from all of the painful things in life. You no longer have to struggle. That would be freeing in my mind. That would be 
reprieve from the struggles of life. Now, I know that along with that, you also lose some of the positive things. You lose the relationships in your life that are important to you and precious to you. You lose the things that you like that you don't want to lose. You lose it all. And you die, you pass away, and are gone. And then the people in your life, the responsibilities that you have are all taken care of. People heal, they move on, they no longer expect anything from you, all of your bills are wiped out, all of these things are taken care of. And then through the miracle of science or through something, through the Lazarus effect or whatever it is, you come back. You are born again. <laughs> you come back to life. And you walk in and you get to choose the things that you want to pick up again. What would you choose? What would you choose? Would you go back to he's saying, yes, I would like my mortgage back, please. <laughs> um, and I want all these, you know, all those tickets that I had. Um, I'd like those back, please. They're expunged. They're gone. You don't have to deal with them. You are dead to that self. That person is gone. What would you do? If it were me, I would go back and I would find all the good things in life. I'd find the people that I love and I would spend time with them. I'd, I'd pick up all those things and everything else I would leave behind. When we die to ourself, when we die to our old self, we give up all of the painful things, all of the belief systems, all of the things that have shaped us. And we no longer have to carry them. That's why the phrases born again, redeemed, new birth, um, good news. Those terms aren't used um, accidentally. We are born again and it means something. It's just not a figure of speech. I am humbled when I sit in the presence of people who've done their work, who say, I know that I'm a mess. I know that I've made bad choices, and I also know that I no longer accuse myself, and I see myself accurately. Those kinds of people tend to be really comfortable around other people's messes. They tend to be real easy to get along with because they don't have a whole lot of these messy expectations of, you know, you got to have it all together, and you got to have it all, you got to be looking right, and all those things. In fact, those types of people tend to smell the other kind of people who are trying to keep up the facades and all those things. They can smell them a mile away and they go, guess what? Someday you're gonna figure out that you're just totally deluding yourself and when you wake up, come on, you know, we, it's a good club, we have hats kind of thing. And <laughs> we can die to ourselves. We can let the old self go. That tends to be easier when we have other people in our lives again to walk with us through that. Um, and I would encourage each one of you here, if you've never even considered that, if you don't know what that feels like, you don't know what that looks like, talk to one of the leaders here. They could probably give you some direction in that. Um, find the answer to that. Let this become a community where that is done, where you can help people die to themselves. That's what it can be. All right, that's the polar bear conundrum, that's the accusation game, and that is um, dying to yourself. Those are kind of the three 
um, ways. Again, those are those are easy to describe. Getting good at it takes practice. There's some muscle memory there. There's also some therapeutic techniques, which I think would be helpful to know about. I'll mention just two. Man, we're going to go real fast here. Um, one is called EFT. It's a way to um, um, it's called emotional freedom technique. It's a pretty powerful way that I use that helps get some of the blocks and some of the emotional distress out of the way, which kind of clogs up the rational thinking and makes it easier to believe the truth, the new truths, rather than being stuck in the old lies. Um, there's another, there's another uh, technique. It's more for trauma. It's more for those um, physical reactivity things. And I think l lots of people have them, whether it's a big T trauma, which is like a car accident or an abusive situation, or a small T trauma, which is long-term neglect. And it kind of, again, shapes the perspective of how you view the world. Um, it's called EMDR, and it's a way to actually process some stuff from one brain to the other. You gotta be specially trained in it, and there's all sorts of criterion and, and uh, research around it. but therapeutically two good techniques to kind of help prompt and move that process along. So, but you usually have to be with a counselor or a therapist to do some of that. Everyone tracking still? <clears throat> All right, then let's get to the really good stuff. We'll get started now. Um, I want you to remember, please, oops, let's go back, that um, failure often confirms a pre-existing negative belief that we already have. So, what I think we should do is the first step in overcoming the fear of failure is I want you to describe the failure in the third person. Again, it's that shift from, from internal processing up here to external processing. I have this great, great video clip of this happening. Problem is, every other word is a swear word, and if you throw it in church, you're not invited back often, okay? So I'm not going to show it. <clears throat> I'm not even going to tell you what movie it's from, but um, the, the, the scene is this woman making uh, just this horrible mistake, and at the end of it, she turns to someone and she says, did you see what I did? Um, when we describe our failures, did you, see what, did you see what he just did? He said that, talking about yourself. Can you believe he, he swung at that and missed? Can you believe that you know, this happened? I can't believe that he did that. When you put it into the third person, what it does is it actually takes some of that, that shame charge off of there because you're not talking about you anymore. You're talking about someone else. And when we look at it from outside of ourselves, it's like, really? It's not that big of a deal. Um, you just said something funny or you, you, know, you did this or you did that. It actually takes the charge off just a little bit. So. First step to overcoming the fear of failure is describe the failure in the third person. The next step would be identify the negative or false belief. This mistake means this, that I am stupid, that I'm not smart enough, that I am lazy, that I am funny looking, that I am, what does this mistake, what does this failure <clears throat> confirm? I want you to find that pre-existing negative belief. Because what you will often find is, um, it's my theory that we really only have three, two or three core beliefs and that lots of these other things will always kind of trace back to this one core belief that I am unwanted 
or that I am stupid or something like that. And all of these things tend to confirm that one belief. Instead of chasing down the 19 symptoms up here, when you can start to identify, well, there it is again, I'm an inconvenience, there it is again, um, I shouldn't bother people, um, I'm not that smart, then you're gonna go, my gosh, this is a prominent theme in my life. Where in the world did I learn that? And let's start dealing with that issue. And if you take care of that one, it tends to bleed out and take care of all the symptoms. And so 19 issues tend to clear up. So when you can identify the negative or the false belief, um, you'll get down to that core issue and uh, move through some of this stuff a little bit faster. Um, I want you to identify the feelings. This is an important one. We have both thinking and we have both feelings. Feelings are, are the the motivation, the impetus for us to behave. In fact, feelings always motivate our behavior. I'll explain that later. <clears throat> um, so, I made this mistake. That means that I'm stupid and I feel what? I feel embarrassed. I feel inadequate. I feel um, silly. I feel vulnerable. I feel scared. The feelings component is very, very important to be able to identify because that tends to motivate our behavior. Oh, I'm going to hide now. I don't want anybody to see me in this way, and so I'm going to hide because I just don't want to be embarrassed anymore. I'm going to try to control this person over here. My wife keeps doing this, and it makes me uncomfortable, so I'm going to try to make her stop doing this You know, while we're out with friends, and I do it in a very hurtful or unkind way. When you identify the feelings, you will get a lot more traction in this. Oh, here's the fun one that everyone loves. <clears throat> I want you to tell someone else. Again, in that clip, did you see what I just did? Instead of hiding it, instead of trying to make it invisible, when you call it out, that removes probably one of the strongest emotions that we have, which is embarrassment. If you think about it, embarrassment is simply the idea of something being exposed before we want it to be exposed. Well, if you expose it first, guess what? You don't run the risk of really being embarrassed, okay? You might not like it, you might have other feelings, but if you can call it out, by the way, I just tried to kick the ball and I completely missed. Did you, did you see this? And when you do that, again, it takes that charge off and everyone goes, wow, this person isn't afraid to let those mistakes be seen and they tend to give a lot of grace and they tend to give a lot of understanding because they go, this person is pretty self-confident. They don't really, this isn't going to bug them, and so we can't bug them as well. Or the bugging, the, the, the kind of ridicule that you'll get from that tends to be a little bit more kind-hearted rather than soul-searing. It doesn't tend to be about um, uh, character. No guarantees. I want you to hear that. Okay, Some people are just mean. Um, some people in authority, some people in your past who are still going to try to accuse you, okay? So those kinds of people you might want to treat differently, but the majority of the people, you can go through these steps. Be safe around safe people and um, avoid the people who aren't safe. Um, some of the ways that these play out, Pixar, you know, people who make Toy Story and all those things, they got a policy that um, they have to show at the end of the week all of their work that they're doing, okay? They don't get to create this idea and develop it out all the way. 
Because what happens is, as it's going along, if you can fix those mistakes early, if you can fail fast, people can look at that, actually, that's not working out there. You haven't put a whole lot of time and energy into what you've done. You can course correct, and you get a much better product because they are, they are encouraged to be seen often and commonly. It also reduces the competitiveness and it reduces the isolation and they tend to come up with pretty good products, pretty good storylines, pretty good characters, all that because it is it is seen and collaborated on. Um, Coke, Coke CEO a while back, they were making all sorts of mistakes and he came out in front of all of the stockholders and says, you know, as we take more risks, this is something we must accept as part of the regeneration process. Again, mistakes. He, he understands that you can't look good and get better at the same time. So we're going to take some risks. We're going to try some things. They aren't going to work. And we'll tell you about them. We tried this. It didn't work. But we found out fast. And we course corrected. Um, I think it's real important that you identify what went right. In every failure, there's something that went right. Okay, Even the idea of, I tried it. I just put myself out there. Boy, it bombed. I mean, it cratered bad. But at least I tried. Identify what went right. There was a guy who um, ran a website named Steve Sorowitz. He, uh, the website is Payosity. It's a, it's a billing kind of thing. He um, spent a million, a million dollars hiring a web firm to uh, create a whole new web interface for his business. Um, didn't do his homework. Found out the people couldn't deliver. Million dollars thrown at this thing. Just lots of time, lots of effort. And at the end, it was bad. They couldn't process over 100 people. They have 10,000 clients, and the system couldn't process over 100 people at a time. He's like, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So he had, was faced with the decision, do I spend more money trying to fix this problem, or do I cut my losses here, figure out what I did wrong and what I did right, and start over again. He opted for that. He um, shows up at this other company that he did his homework on, found out they can deliver their product first before hiring them, and says, I screwed up really, really bad. I need you to fix it. He called it out. He admitted it. He owned it. He let it be seen. And they fixed it. And now they got a good product. They're back, you know, back making money and all those things. But he understood and he, he knew that he just had to own it. But he also identified what he did right. He says, you know, um, I hired people instead of thinking I could do it myself or, you know, this thing or that thing. And so he examined what he did and picks up and moves on. So examine what you did right. Tell someone what you're going to do. If you've made a mistake, do not let that be the end. Amen. Do it again. Try again. Adjust. What did you learn? And then tell someone what you're going to do. Okay? I've already told you how I messed up. Man, here's what I think I want to do instead. And then finally, what do you think the last one is? Do it. Try it. And see what happens. And if you fail again, guess what? You just start over. <laughs> you tell someone about it. You figure out what the belief is that's being confirmed, what the feelings are that come with it. All those things. And you just keep going over and over and over until you find success. Again, five minutes to teach you. It will take, so, take a while to learn how to do this. If you do it in a group of people 
who are already making mistakes, then now it's like, hey, guess what? I really messed up over here. Who can, who can outdo me? Oh, yeah, well, I got this one over here. And so it becomes safe to just own those mistakes and to grow <laughs> and to change and to be different. That's how to overcome the fear of failure. <sighs> Your homework. I give homework. For those who are interested, next week we're going to get into groups again just like we did here. We'll hand out the cards again. We'll figure out who goes first. And then I'm going to ask you to share a failure story. I don't want it to be the big story. I don't want it to be something that is too revealing. I want you to moderate some of that, but I want you to say, here's something I've tried in the past that didn't work out. Here's how it kind of cratered. Because we're going to practice being seen. This actually works. It really does. And when you can practice being seen, and we're going to, again, start with the easy stuff. Don't go for the big, juicy ones yet. Keep those. Okay, find this really safe people for that. And then I want you to go through the um, steps that we just did. Briefly share the story in the group. I want you to identify the pre-existing belief that the failure or the mistake confirmed. I want you to identify the feeling, where the, where the belief came from. See if you can figure out where that came from in your story. Again, we got those three lists there, or if another place that it came from. Uh, what went well? What would you do differently? And when are you going to do it? For the risky people, for the people who want to put application to learning which tends to be the best learning model. Did I mention that the best way that we learn and grow and change? Did you guys, did I mention that last week? We tend to grow when we are uncomfortable, but safe. How many of you, that assignment makes you just a little uncomfortable? Excellent. Then you are in a good place to grow as long as you sit in a group that is safe. If I can remind you of the things that tend to make it safe, we tend to let people tell their own stories. We don't tell other people's stories. We hold that confidentiality. We hold their hearts well. We um, don't make anybody do something that they don't want to do. It's their choice. If they don't want to do this, we don't look down on them or condemn them. We just say, you can have some more time. Take whatever you need to. We encourage. We um, reflect some of those things back. That's what helped make this environment safe. If it's still a little scary, it's okay. It might take a little bit of time and practice to learn how to do some of this. All right. Let me pray for you guys, and then we'll um, let you go home. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the capacity to learn. Thank you for giving us the capacity to know who we are. Thank you, Lord, that you see us as you have created us and that the things that we do, the things that others have done to us, never, never contaminates your view of us. Father, help us to have your eyes for ourselves and for others. And in your name, amen. amen. Thanks for coming. <laughs>